0: from Kirkco Media. Welcome to Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Jane Albrecht, filling in for our regular host, Bill Curtis. If the presidential campaigns have your head spinning, or even worse, ready to tear your hair out, or if you're worried about what all this is going to lead to on election night, then you've tuned into the right podcast. Today, we're lucky to have with us an award-winning journalist and veteran of 11 presidential campaigns, will help us make sense of it all. We'll be talking about the dance between the presidency and the media, how media coverage of presidential campaigns has changed over the years, and how ratings pressures on our news outlets affects what news we get and how that news gets presented to us. We'll also talk about what you can expect on election night. So let's get started. First our co-host, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and one-man encyclopedia on the history of American politics, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you, Ed. Thanks, Jane. And now for our special guest, Walter Shapiro. Walter's a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University and a celebrated journalist. He's written for Roll Call, The Guardian, Washington Post, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and USA Today. He also lectures in political science at Yale University. He is covering this presidential campaign for the New Republic. Early in his career, Walter ran for Congress and later was the speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. One of the more fun things about Walter is that he performed stand-up comedy for many years. In 1998, the Times of London described him as one of Manhattan's leading political satirists. Welcome, Walter. It's our honor and pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Oh, this is gonna be fun.
0: Walter, you've written about our television press that it likes conflict and drama. They do so because conflict and drama gets ratings. I actually get a chuckle when I see promos for the presidential debates. They flash each candidate's face on the screen as if it were a heavyweight boxing match. —
1: Though I would love to watch Trump come in for a weigh-in. —
0: Yes, that would be fun, yes. So how has the evolution of the media from the first presidential debate between Kennedy and Nixon to the advent of social media change presidential campaigns, and how the media covers those campaigns?
1: Well, I mean, the thing that stays in my mind is that the first presidential debate between Kennedy and Nixon in 1960 took place in the studios of the Chicago TV station WBBM. There was no studio audience. There was no wild applause. It was just two candidates, moderators, um, questioners from the media, and two lecterns. And the overproduced sets that we got, particularly during the primary debates, are just a comic expansion of what used to be. But much more importantly, the whole thing is everything is a profit center. Once the media discovered politics sells. There's a reason why the publication is called Politico rather than The Podiatrist. I believe CNN claimed and they had to make this public because it was part of the sale of Time Warner Media, that they made an additional $1 billion in unanticipated profits during 2016. Les Moonves, now the defrocked president of the company that oversees CBS, said in February of 2016, they say Donald Trump isn't good for America, but he has been great for CBS. So I say, bring it on, Donald.
0: Yeah. Ed, as a historian, how do you see presidential campaigns have changed since 1960?
2: I think social media has changed presidential campaigns. Before, in the 1960s, we had just three broadcast networks, and the candidates had to go through that media. Now you have, rather than news sources like CBS or Mutual Broadcasting, who tried to get as broad an audience as possible. Now you have things like MSNBC and Fox that can narrowcast to a narrow audience and therefore feed a particular viewpoint. Plus, with social media, you can have sub communities. And with that group, they can foment and foster and develop their various viewpoints. And that's not really a comment to right or left. So I think. The social media, on top of the cable news networks and the various different new sources of information, has, from a media point, changed American politics since 1960.
1: What Ed said um, got me thinking about something. I teach a course at Yale on presidential politics and the news media, and we always start the course with making of the president in that even 60 years later is still probably the most influential book on political campaigns ever written. For the first time, Theodore White revealed the machinations that got Kennedy the nomination. And as a result, it really changed the dominant medium of 1960, which wasn't TV, it was still print. And for the most part, it was journalism as stenography. And what happened between 1960, and the boys on the bus of 1972, and the new journalism, and the breakdown of traditional journalistic mores in the 60s and 70s, is we got interpretive print journalism very similar to what we have today by the mid-70s.
0: Do you know, Walter, has the press really come to grips, particularly our television press, come to grips with the role they played in the making of this president?
1: To a large extent, TV now has an excuse. All presidents dominate TV coverage. It was true of Ronald Reagan. It was true of Bill Clinton. It was true of Barack Obama. So when you have both the spectacle of Donald Trump combined with the reality that he's an incumbent president, it is really hard for television and the media in general to clean up their act. So The fact is that we are living in an age dominated by Donald Trump is less a function of TV the way it was in 2016, and more the cult of the imperial presidency that has grown up since Kennedy.
0: Isn't there an inherent conflict between ratings pressures on our news, which means giving the public what they want, and true journalism, which requires solid reporting of the facts? Aren't they sort of at odds with each other?
1: Part of it is that we have metrics that we never had before. When I was a columnist for USA Today, then America's largest paper from 1995 to 2004, I assumed that every person who read the paper, all two or three million copies, read my column eagerly. The only way USA Today could measure this at that time was to do focus groups in shopping malls and show people parts of the papers and say, do you remember reading that? But right now, in a web world, oh my God, the readership of your piece has dropped um, significantly in the last nine minutes. Let's put something else up on the homepage. Let's flog something else. It's not only television. Everybody knows exactly what the metrics are. In many newsrooms, they are actually shown these pressures cannot be ignored. Maybe they explain why the, the news coverage of the New York Times has probably gone to the left. It is certainly more sensitive to Black Lives Matter and other issues than one would have imagined five years ago. And in the same way, the Wall Street Journal is much more clipped about politics, even though the news coverage of the journal is still old-fashioned, follow-the-rules news coverage.
0: Ed, do you have any thoughts about... This age we're in, and have there been other ages where the news has been as unreliable as it can be today from various outlets where there's no fact checking and things like that?
2: I certainly think this would be true in the early ages of the Republic at the rise of the partisan newspapers. You had a collection of highly partisan, self funded newspapers in basically every Middlesex village and town in, uh, by then, 15 states. And they presented the news in a totally partisan fashion. They recreated the facts. I think that continued through the rise of the world of Hearst and of Pulitzer. It had sort of, though, disappeared with the Second World War more than anything. And you had an era of seemingly even-handed news. Why do you think
0: there's so much hostility towards the press and distrust of the press in
1: general? even before Trump, there has been a war by the Republican right on the press for the last 15 years. It has been a hallmark of the 21st century rather than a Trump-only phenomena. even though it has been exaggerated. That's part of it. Part of it is we didn't used to have a liberal TV network and an ultra-conservative TV network we didn't have Breitbart, we didn't have the Huffington Post 20 years ago, that to a large extent, there's been a outgrowth of partisan media.
0: Is there any hope, and I address this to both Ed and Walter, for our news media in the current climate to come back to where people have solid sources of reliable information?
2: I don't see the route out because I believe that there are fundamental market forces and fundamental American forces and fundamental bits of psychology that has driven us to where we are. And I don't necessarily see them coming back together because there will be that same commercial interest, that same drive after the election, no matter who wins.
1: During this period, The New York Times has significantly gained circulation. The Washington Post has significantly gained circulation. There is a large audience for legacy newspapers and and mostly through their websites. In addition, although it's not nearly as sexy as what happened on Hannity last night or what Rachel Maddow said at 9 p.m. Eastern, there are about 25 million Americans who tune in every night to watch the old-fashioned evening newscasts on the three legacy broadcast networks at 6.30. We don't focus enough on the appetite in this country for serious journalism, because it's not as beguilingly new and alarming um, as the fake news, Uh, hyper-partisan discussions that we have constantly on, oh, my God, Fox News. Has MSNBC gone too far to the left? All of those questions.
0: Let's hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up after the break.
1: Depending right now on what polls you look at, there have never been fewer undecided voters since we started polling in the 1970s. We are in an era of intense partisanship, which means People are much less likely to turn in on a debate and say, you know, I never thought of that before. It will be okay.
2: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Taback and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media.
0: We are back with Walter Shapiro and Ed Larson. Walter, we talked earlier about the Nixon and Kennedy debate, and we're going to be facing several debates in this coming election. It was said that the Nixon-Kennedy debate was really dispositive in terms of who won that election. Do you think that the debates coming up between Biden and Trump will determine the outcome of this election?
1: No, and let me explain why. In 1960, going back to some of the things Ed said about the fact that we were a much less partisan country and political parties were made up of of big coalitions, that there were many more undecided voters. There were many more voters who did not know, based on just party ID, who they would vote for. We had just come out of two Eisenhower landslides in a row following 20 years of democratic control of the White House. So to a large extent, it was a volatile electorate with many swing voters. Depending right now on what polls you look at, there have never been fewer undecided voters since we started polling in the 1970s. That depending on your poll, you're talking 3 to 5% undecided. Even before Trump in 2012, between uh, Obama and Mitt Romney, was breathtakingly stable. So to a large extent, We are in an era of intense partisanship, which means people are much less likely to turn in on a debate and say, you know, I never thought of that before. Uh, That Donald Trump has a lot to say for himself. I think the odds are high that nothing before the debates have moved the polls significantly since March. Not the epidemic, not Black Lives Matter not the Republican and Democratic conventions. So the safe guess is that nothing's going to move very much because of the debates, despite the fact that the impulse of all press is to immediately say, aha, that's a game-changing moment.
0: Walter, do national polls really mean anything? Our president gets elected by electors, and how electors are picked are determined not only state by state, but often precinct by precinct. So... One thing that drives me crazy is in August, they promote all these national polls to try to keep the contest going.
1: It is cheaper to do one national poll than to do a separate poll for Pennsylvania, a separate poll for Wisconsin, a separate poll for Michigan. The sampling is roughly the same, whether you're talking about a universe of 10 million voters or a universe of 130 million voters. Where national polls are really overhyped, is during the presidential primaries, because not only do individual states vote in the primaries, but individual states vote in sequence. At least in the fall election, all the votes are geared towards one election, not 50 separate primary elections.
0: With respect to COVID, how has the pandemic, combined with the current news, affected coverage of the campaigns?
1: First of all, the pandemic has been One of the few good sides, other than the um, growth of home baking, (laughs) has been that this is a wonderful boost for pollsters because suddenly people are at home, they're bored, and they're actually answering the telephone. But polling questions are by nature a little rough, a little blunderbuss-like. Can you keep people on the phone long enough? They often pose choices on issues that don't fit the way somebody actually thinks. So I really love having free-form conversations with voters in swing states, say in a diner outside of Columbus, Ohio. The point is that that is not possible during a pandemic because no one wants a stranger plopping down next to them while they're eating dinner in a diner. I don't want to spend time indoors. We don't know what effect the absence of campaigning has really had on the election. Because the major effect of a campaign appearance is for both the challenger and the incumbent president to dominate local media. But again, we don't have a good handle on what the absence of campaigning has really done to this election.
0: What do you think the impact of the pandemic will be on Americans' view of governance? I know Ed you're a historian not a not a futurist but there's been a lot of talk about this pandemic changing people's views of government and the role of government. Do you see it staying the same or changing?
2: I see it driving people apart even more because I just like Walter I talk with different people and They each have their own narrative. There are people who believe that this shows that the federal government is corrupt, that the only functional government is at the county level. I hear that from many people. The CDC can't be trusted. None of them can be trusted. And therefore, weakening their faith in government, where another group takes the opposite viewpoint and say that, no, no, we needed government. We need government to step in. And so you're going to see that narrative driven by their own separate media, and they'll have their own narratives driving them two different ways. And because of the so-called failed response in America, it will even feed the two narratives even more. Walter, until
0: the pandemic, you were on the road a lot. What's your sense?
2: What my sense is
1: that I think if Biden is elected and certainly looks that way, the biggest challenge he will face is creating faith in government to handle the pandemic competently and how he would handle the rollout for the vaccine, which I hope is coming in early next year, and how he would handle safety precautions and how we would handle Massively expanding testing is really probably the biggest challenge of the Biden presidency. And if he's successful with it, I think we're going to take a totally different view of government. If he is unsuccessful with it, then I think we are on a downward slide of distrust.
0: What do you think we should expect on election night, on November 3rd?
1: Everywhere you turn. There's somebody else with another dystopian um, scenario of what could happen on election night. Uh, Trump will declare victory. When the uh, absentees are counted, there'll be a blue shift and that this will be seen as a corrupt way of changing the election outcomes. But all of this assumes the TV networks will call states based on incomplete returns on election night. I think that is very unlikely. Even Fox News has really prided itself on a totally professional decision desk. I think the difference from a normal election night is that instead of a massive number of red and blue states, we're going to have a number of key states that are white for undecided. I'm really hoping that the networks will be very precise in saying we only have 56% of the vote in in Ohio we only have 48% of the vote in in Pennsylvania rather than doing the deceptive 99% of precincts reporting, because what that implies is that these are 99% of the votes when really it's 99% of the day of reports from the precincts. But the much more important thing is, while it is looking like the count may be slow in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, There are states that start counting absentee ballots well in advance of election day. Florida, for all the controversy of 2000 and the hanging shads, uh, is a fast counting state. It just happened to be evenly divided in 2000. Uh, Arizona is another fast counting state. North Carolina is a third fast counting state. And the point is that we show that Biden has, on election night, that Biden has won Florida has won North Carolina and Arizona and lost Florida, it is almost impossible for Donald Trump to cobble t- together enough states to win. We may not have the 270 and the ball coming down on election night, but we will have a very clear idea of who's ahead.
0: Ed, any comments on that?
2: I just add that I hope Walter's right. I'm not as optimistic because I think That regardless of what the media does, the president may call it for himself. And there are states, states like Arizona and Florida, and even in a way, uh, Wisconsin and North Carolina, where the legislature is firmly in control of the Republican Party, a party that might be responsive to Trump's claims. Now. I don't know that's true. Again, I've often said I'm not a prophet. I'm a historian and I will be ready to analyze it after the fact.
1: To some extent, Ed, you're referring in part to a uh, Atlantic Monthly article by Barton Gelman that talked about legislators sending their own set of electors to Washington. But what gets complicated here is even if all Republicans would go along in these states, which I am still somewhat dubious about. There are Democratic governors in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and North Carolina. In Arizona, there is a Democratic Secretary of State. These possibilities are far from unequivocal. And I think to some extent, we have gotten ourselves into, so caught up into new dystopian Trump-induced fears that we are beginning to confuse what could in theory happen with what will happen. And while these are not impossible scenarios, they're low probability scenarios, but each one of them is treated as likely.
0: The last question is not so much on our topic, but I know we're running out of time, Walter. You were a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. How many speechwriters were there and how did that process go?
1: It was an impressive group. Chris Matthews was there. Um, Jim Fallows was there. Rick Hertzberg of The New Yorker was there. I was there. I was very much a junior speechwriter. My friend Jonathan Alter has a biography of Jimmy Carter coming out about now, and I've, I've reviewed it. Oddly enough, the opening anecdote in the book is about Jimmy Carter giving a speech in June 1979, unveiling the first White House solar panels. And it happens to have been my speech. And admittedly, in that speech, Jimmy Carter said that William Henry Harrison, um, who governed for one month in 1841, was the president who brought electricity to the White House. Because obviously it was his grandson, Benjamin Harrison, but all the way through, I wrote William Henry Harrison, and it survived five uh, different levels um, of vetting. And Jimmy Carter repeated it. And it wasn't until the New York Times the next day pointed out that William um, Henry Harrison had died about three years before Thomas Edison, the inventor of the electric light bulb, was born. And it is telling that I never heard a peep on it.
0: Walter Shapiro. Ed Larson, thank you. Walter, how can our viewers find you online and on social media?
1: Let us merely recommend at Mr. Walter Shapiro on Twitter is the best way. But um, there is also archives of my work. If you can just uh, Google Walter Shapiro New Republic, Walter Shapiro Roll Call, and Walter Shapiro uh, Brennan Center, you will each come to a, a perfect insomnia fighter my collective work.
0: Wonderful. I'd also like to thank our producers, Mike Thomas and A.J. Mosley. Sound Engineering was done by Michael Kennedy. Music for Politics, Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Please share the podcast with your friends and family and tune in next week for our next episode of Politics, Meet Me in the Middle.
2: Kirko Media. Media for your mind.